This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week featuring a very prominent executive director in the Jewish organizational world, Russell Robinson, head of the Jewish National Fund, JNF, one of the longest standing and most influential organizations in the Jewish nonprofit world, known by many for their ubiquitous blue boxes, but as they often will remind you, they are a lot more than just planting trees in the land of Israel, and that's really the truth, as we'll hear from Russell. JNF is responsible for so much development all over Israel, in particular now in the Negev in the south. Water restoration and just an incredible array of large-scale projects and services. Russell has an infectious passion fused with a southern charm, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing him and his enthusiasm. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions, suggestions, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this show currently, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, whatever platform you might be using. Please spread the word to your friends, Corona Bound, or Anytime thereafter, those looking for meaningful, inspirational content from an incredibly wide array of Jewish personalities. Speaking of which, let's get to our personality of today's show and our conversation with Jewish National Fund Chief Executive Officer Russell Robinson. We are here with Russell Robinson, the CEO of Jewish National Fund, JNF. A lot of acronyms there, but I am a big FOA fan of acronyms. How are you, Russell? I am great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for joining us and very excited to speak with you today. Today's actually the recording day. Of course, this will be released much later, but we are recording on Yom HaTzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, and quite appropriately so because JNF has done an incredible amount to promote the flourishing of the land of Israel over the past 70 plus years, and really before that in the pre-state era as well. And it's therefore quite an honor and an appropriate honor to be speaking with you today. But before we get into the JNF conversation, Russell, tell us a little bit about where you're from, your upbringing. Let's take it from the top. So, Ari, thank you for very much for having me and representing the Jewish National Fund here. And it is a special day. It's one of those, uh, you know, those holidays that is more than a holiday. So uh, it really is the story of the Jewish people and who we are today. And and it, and I grew up in a in a place where in a town in a time that uh, wasn't the, the 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 center of Judaism. It was El Paso, Texas. And I'm, a, I think, fifth or sixth generation American. My family were moved to the United States in 1790 from Alsace-Lorraine. So, you know, you talk about generation to generation staying Jewish and living in El Paso, Texas. That's not where they came from in 1790. But 
you know, so that that's my upbringing. And so, but still, even in El Paso, Texas, Yom Hatzmut, Israel independence was a very important part, especially when you're in the deep south in the Texas town. Fascinating. Do you know much about the early history of the family from where and why they came? I mean, 1790, you're about 100 years too early for the major waves of immigration from the pales of settlement and so forth. What do you know about that history? Well, you know, I think that first off, uh, the story of American Judaism in, in the United States is a fascinating story. And we could probably do a whole podcast. I don't think enough people know about that or understand how relevant uh, Jews were in every part of the establishment of the United States. From uh, you know Yehuda Benjamin, who helped finance the the Revolutionary War and and died penniless, and I could go on and on. But but the family there was the Alsatian Wars, and every time the Germans would win, they'd blame the Jews, and every time the French would win, they'd blame the Jews. And so uh, I think the Jews finally figured it out maybe it wasn't such a good thing. You know, it's on that French-German border, and so I, I'm. This part I'm editorializing just from what you could gather. It seems to have been an Alsatian war that was beginning or ending in 1790, and they figured that they were going to come, and, and they emigrated to uh, Virginia. We were one of the first Jewish settlers in Virginia. And uh, there was the Richmond and the Petersburg, Virginia, and started building businesses from there. And, and uh, all until my grandfather and his brother went to uh, Canada because they didn't want to be in their parents' successful business, okay? You Are you know, sure I, they were Jewish? I don't know where Did that... Did you check? <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were not only Jewish, but uh, they were having successful businesses in Petersburg, and I don't know where the intelligence came. They decided, let's all stay in the successful business. Let's go to, to Canada. And we were from the French side of Alsace-Lorraine, so they spoke French, and they went to Canada, opened haberdashery stores, because... They spoke French, and so there was a whole Robinson's Upstairs store, and uh, I have no idea what happened to the successful businesses. I know what happened to them. They all went out of business and the Robinson's Upstairs, but uh, my father came after World War II to El Paso, Texas, because he was uh, didn't want to be in his parents' successful business, and he got off the train, and I think it's a great story about the Jewish people. It took him, he said, eight days. And he was going there because the godparents were in the liquidation business. And they said, come and work in our liquidation business. And he got off the train in El Paso, Texas. He said, he looked around, he said, I got to get out of this place. But what he didn't realize is that if you were a single Jewish boy going into a small town, that every Jewish mother knew you were coming for eight days. And when he got off the train, the mothers were lined up on the train tracks, and they would go up and they'd say, Richard, Richard, my house Sunday. Richard, my house Monday. By Thursday, he met my mother, so he ended up in El Paso, Texas. That's a great story. So your mom actually had grown up there? My mother was born there. Her brother was born in Germany. Fascinating. So what, what, do you, what was the Jewish life like in, in El Paso, Texas? I mean, it sounds like there were at least, at least enough... Uh, Jewish families to line up, you know, dates for your dad. So what was the, what was the makeup over there? Again, you know, it's a, it, it was a great place to grow up and don't get me wrong. It was a great place to grow up and you didn't know better on a lot of different fronts. Of course, there was two synagogues, you know, synagogue and a temple, because even though there was only like, 
I think less than 1,500 Jews when I grew up. Uh, and that, that counts everybody who didn't even want to be counted at that point. You know, you couldn't have one place, you had to have two. The Reform Temple was across the street from my house. That's the place we didn't go to. The conservative synagogue was, was, was further away. And, you know, you grew up, uh, and, I, and I say this with respect, and, and it tells part of my story, Ari. I didn't grow up loving my Judaism. But I don't think that that was small town America. That's America for a lot of our Jewish kids. Why didn't you like your Judaism? First, I only knew from Judaism that it was about Oive. Oi, you know, we lost six million Jews and everybody hates us. Oi, vey. You know, uh, you know, don't tell people you're Jewish because they'll, there's anti-Semitism. It was Oive. Second, I had Hebrew school and Talmud Torah class. Well, you know, that's a really great design for a kid. Why don't you go to school and then on Sunday we'll wake you up at 8 o'clock in the morning to make sure you go to Sunday school to teachers who really didn't want to teach anyway and you'd be there till noon. That is an Oive, and, right? By the way, if that's Oive. And by the way, if you think that's bad, we're going to make you go on Mondays and Wednesdays after school. And then tell me how much you love being Jewish. And so I didn't grow up. I, I got bar mitzvah thinking it was the end of my Jewish life. You know, when I said my last amen and, uh, you know, I did my haftorah, I thought, wow, this is the end of prison and a good cash flow opportunity, you know, and and that was it. And then it wasn't until later in, when I was a senior in high school that somebody introduced me to BBYO at the time that I saw Jews dancing and having fun. And I didn't know that Jewish people did that. And, and I decided that moment that whatever I was going to be doing in my life, and I was in business and other things, that still I was going to be about Jewish life never being oive and only talking about how great it could be. And I wanted to learn more about how great it could be. Did you get connected to BBYO through friends or a city chapter? What was the connection point for that? Now we had a BBYO and then we went to a regional convention. That's really how I went. One of my friends said to me, listen, there's a guy in town who's paying for all the, uh, the teens to go on a BBYO convention. And uh, I said, well, what's, what is that? He says, what do you care? It's free. It's in Dallas, Texas. Uh, there'll be some uh, girls there. And we always sneak alcohol. And I figured, I don't know, it sounded like the recipe wasn't so bad. You know, it's just, you know, uh, and the shopping list sounded okay. And I went and that's where I got turned on. Do you have a moment that you remember within that BBYO experience that kind of captures or crystallizes the excitement that you're referring to? Well, I think I, I learned, uh, there's a lot of different things I learned from my, my friends who were going in, in BBYO. At that BBYO convention, no, it wasn't at that convention, but at the BBYO program they were having for Yom HaShoah, which is relevant because it just was last week. It was the first time where I heard a program where people counted. One, two, three. And there must have been about, I don't know, 50, 60 of us in the program, and we kept counting and got to 500. 
and that's a long time for everybody to take a number one you know 18 200 210 211 212 and we got to like 500 and one somebody stopped and they said now imagine six million and i said wow never had that proportion ever came to me second when I saw people dancing and having fun and they were talking about how great it was to be Jewish. And it's really been part of what I have tried to do the rest of my life. And I will continue to do that moment about how great it is to be Jewish. Why is it that that's not what I heard all my life? Why is it that we're not telling people how great it is to be Jewish? And I believe it is. And so I'm on this constant uh, movement, and that's part of my life at Jewish National Fund. And when I came here, that I was committed before this with the message, and, and Jewish National Fund gave me the tool and the opportunity in the organization that to build that movement of that I am so happy I'm Jewish because it's the greatest thing on the face of the earth. I certainly think that your experience mirrors that of probably millions of young American Jews over the years who had less than inspiring touch points with their Judaism as youngsters. I think a lot of what movements like the one I'm involved with at Mayor and others like it are trying to do is really to infuse people with a sense of Jewish passion and pride and an understanding of Judaism in a much more profound way than they may have encountered it earlier on in their lives. So what did you do after that? You went to college, I assume? Did you stay in Texas? Did you move around at all? No, so I stayed in Texas. Look, and I opened up my own uh, business with some, with some friends. It's a carpet cleaning business. Uh, I got into Jewish life, organizational Jewish life. Where'd you go? So I went to the University of Texas, and uh, I, I came back. and oh, okay. we opened up a small business. Come on. Hook up Lawrence. Hook up Lawrence. And we opened up a small business, a carpet cleaning business, and we were doing quite well. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a guy that wanted to start a resident Jewish camp in El Paso for El Paso and Albuquerque. And I had never been to camp in my life. I mean, I, you know, we didn't have much when I grew up. And so I hadn't been to a day camp. Uh, you know, I didn't know from any of that. But I'm sure he, he first off, he gave me the great Jewish organizational lie. Don't worry, you don't have to do anything. I thought you were going to say, don't worry, you don't have to fundraise. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So first he started off, don't worry, you just got to cheer this. You don't have to do anything. Uh, okay, so now I've learned that I've passed that lie on over and over. And it's a, I understand that in the Talmud or something, it's a legal uh, phrase. Um, and, and then, he, you know, I, he said, oh, it's really not going to cost you much. And I thought, what do you mean it's going to cost me much? I'm not going to go to the camp. You know, he said, no, but, you know, you got to give some money to it. And I have to tell you, from that moment, too, it's about tzedakah. I had always grown up that tzedakah was important. Not only is it important, it is a responsibility, Ari, that we don't teach anymore enough. It's the blue box, you know, that represents the Jewish National Fund. And, and that's something else that I'm big about. Tzedakah is a muscle. If you don't exercise it, then it's very hard to go to a 30, 40, 50-year-old and start talking about giving when you haven't been oriented that way. It's not that they're cheap. 
it's an unusual, it's like running a mile or two miles or a marathon. you got to exercise, you can't do it. And so if I go to you and say, I want you to give tzedakah, and you're not used to that, I might as well tell you to go run a marathon. And you're going to tell me I can't do that. Well, I always grew up, my grandfather, my parents, they had very little. But by gosh, we understood that if you wanted to feel good, you better give. And so when he says, I'm going to cost you much, you got to give to it. I took a breath of air and I said, also, it was one thing that I was never going to lose that feeling of responsibility, nor teaching that responsibility to Tzedakah. The bottom line story of the thing was that he got fired from the JCC two weeks before the camp opened. Um, the camp was separate than the JCC in El Paso, but he packed up and left town. And I said, oh, I ran a business. I've been chairing this committee. How hard can it be to run a camp? Anyway, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. But it goes to what you do, Ari, and what we do spiritually. I sat there. And first off, I didn't know about rain days, and I didn't know about counselors having, uh, you know, love of love with each other. Then, you know, which lasted about two and a half minutes, and then they broke up, and then now the two counselors are mad at each other. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out what the heck does it have to do with camp? Okay, uh, and the kid gets homesick, and so I learned all of that. But I watched on Shabbat a simple act of lighting Shabbat candles. And when you cover your eyes, so peek, and I saw the kids that knew nothing of what they were doing. They had never done it before. And they weren't covering their eyes because of the meaning of the covering of the eyes and the spiritual, I think is a great story. They were covering their eyes because they were crying. Lighting candles. And I, that's again, one of those footsteps where I decided that after that, we sold our business and I went into Jewish communal life. And I just, you know, that if you, I could make a change and I could become a change agent and I could watch somebody else cry or change a life or get a spirit going or don't, that's what life's all about. If you don't get people to join, why are you doing this? So you decided to stay in this Jewish world. Uh, what was your first step? Did you stay in the Jewish camping arena? So they fired the JCC director after they fired that guy. I later became the JCC director. I then became, uh, went to work at uh, uh, the, then the United Jewish Appeal that was the head of all the federations at the time. I was in uh, UJ National and uh, become the number two up there. And I was going back to private industry when Ronald Lauder, 21 years ago, became the president of the Jewish National Fund. And I had did not know him at that time. He called me. I wasn't looking for a job here. I was literally looking and going back to private industry. I went to go meet a billionaire because I figured, why not? And I heard this billionaire talking about organized Jewish life, how important it was to get people involved. And he was going to solve the water catastrophe in Israel. And I said, well, Mr. Lauder, what do you know about water? He said, I don't know. What do you know? I said, it comes out of the tap. He said, okay, so we're equal. And I said, well, you're talking about saving the catastrophe. He says, that means that we have to figure out how to do it. And I'm sitting there watching this billionaire who could do anything he wants with his money. And he is talking about gathering the American Jewish community 
to go deal with the water crisis in Israel? And I said, you know, in all honesty, Mr. Laden, more than we don't know, the American Jewish community gives to Israel because of wars and because of poverty and because of, of uh, a, a poor kid here. I mean, that's how we're raised. That's what we know Israel. He says, we have to change that. And I said that moment, if this crazy guy is talking this way, I got to join this crazy team. And 21 years later, I've had very few days I've regretted it. And uh, I have to tell you, we changed the water catastrophe in Israel around, and we changed Jewish philanthropy around in America. Sophisticated philanthropy where people gave to sewage water, not to a war. Not to a picture of a young kid in a bus that looks like he's like he or she looks like they're poverty stricken, but the strength of who we are it goes back to the old day. And what we found at Jewish National Fundari is that not only did we raise a lot of money then for that, we're raising a lot of money now and a lot of donors who want to give to the strength of the greatest venture that ever happened to the Jewish people called Israel. Why at that time had you stepped out of the Jewish organizational world? Why did you? I guess kind of dropped it and shifted to something else in private industry. What caused that? Was it burnout? What, what exactly was going on there? Well, I was going back to private industry to be quite honest, cause I got burned out at not burned out. I got disappointed, never burned out. And, and that was me. I just felt like the movement at that time wasn't talking about um, what differences we were going to make for the Jewish community. It was all a battlefield of who could get what turf and who was going to be in positions. And for me, it's not what I signed up for. I wanted to be a change agent. And I wanted, I believe, philanthropy and organized Jewish world allow you to join. So I'll go back to my Ronald Lauder story. First meeting I had with, with Ronald and the board of directors of the Jewish National Fund, I even my admiration grew even greater. Can you imagine? He has the Ronald Lauder Foundation. He can make a decision that the foundation is going to do X, Y, Z, and everybody who sits around the table at the foundation will shake their head yes. He sits around a board of directors at Jewish National Fund, and if you took the collective worth of everybody at that table, it doesn't add up to a quarter of his worth, let's say. And yet he is allowing them to vote, to discuss, to join him. That is the greatest philanthropic part. And the movement, and I say this over and over, disservice to philanthropy is small. Is, is, and, and don't get me wrong, Ari, everybody is great work. So I take it that everybody's work is great and they're making changes in the world. But Bill Gates, great philanthropist, right? Gets a lot of, uh, and, and I don't want to take anything away from what he's doing. But if he was a great philanthropist, he would have been the head of American Red Cross or Heart Association or something. You know why? So you and I already could join him in his philanthropy. Ronald Lauder did not decide that the Ronald Lauder Foundation, where he has no bureaucracy, he came to the bureaucratic. And that is why we have 300,000 donors at Jewish National Funding growing. That's why our 22 to 40-year-olds are the fastest growing part of our demog donor demographic, because people could join us and make a difference. And philanthropy is not just giving. Philanthropy is getting 
people to join you. Once you started with JNF, did you really know much about it? I mean, I think everyone, again, the kind of the cliches growing up with the blue boxes and the tree planting certificates. And of course, JNF employees are always very sensitive to say, no, we're more than just trees. What did you know about it when you entered? I knew a blue box and a tree. As a matter of fact, I told uh, uh, Ron a lot at the time. But I will tell you what I've learned. I've learned the two things. One, you know, that at first, you know, I used to, you know, be that kind of person that says, no, we're more than trees. We're more than blue. But then I started thinking about this, Ari. Think about this. Your elementary life, right? You know, when you were in elementary school, in day school, Sunday school, wherever. And when I go around the country and people tell me, oh, I remember in fourth grade, I bought a tree. Or I remember in fifth grade, I had a blue box and I filled it up and we had to bring it in. And Ari, as those stories kept telling to me, I said, wow, who, what other stories do you remember? I'm not the academics. Give me a story that you remember from elementary school, day school or, or Sunday school, like that. Not your academics. Okay, we had a basketball game. I think we won, maybe. But this is a story that now I hear 80-year-olds tell, and I hear 40-year-olds tell, and then I hear 18-year-olds tell. And, you know, this is what I also I, – I love to see the power of things. You know, the power of a podcast like yours – if you can remember that story, what an in, what a impact it made into your mind, into your soul, into your heart. So when they started selling tree certificates in 1921, it was a major gift fundraising. Uh, it was a brilliant thing. How do you get Jews scattered throughout the world to contribute to a dream called the State of Israel before the State of Israel? By the way, Ari, I don't have any maps to show you. By the way, Ari, we haven't been there for 2,000 years. By the way, Ari, uh, we're buying land, but I can't really tell you where because it's wherever. Because uh, what an unbelievable time. By the way, there's no navigator or charity navigator. There's no podcasts. You just got to trust me. So they came up with these tree certificates to have you participate. It was in lieu of a chicken dinner. But that methodology became an ideology. That blue box that people would tell me stories, they'd drop the coins into a bag, and a guy from Jewish National Fund would come in Czechoslovakia and San Francisco and so on, and pick up that money for what? You trusted them to buy land in a place you haven't been for 2,000 years? So I now say, I remember the blue box and the trees, and I smile, and I say, wow, I'm part of that powerful narrative that is part of the Jewish people even today. I imagine once... You did start working there. You learned quite a bit more about JNF beyond those blue boxes and those beautiful memories. What did you learn? And in general, what can you tell us as sort of an overview about what JNF does? I know that there's also KKL, Karen Kam, at least Israel. Is that the same thing? Are they two branches, like an Israeli version? Walk us through kind of the bigger picture when it comes to JNF. That's what's about Jewish life. Let's confuse everybody. Um, and, and by the way, that's why I don't even like to use the word uh, J and F. I only use the words Jewish National Fund. I think one of the great mistakes we make in Jewish life is that we use so many alphabets that uh, if we weren't confused before, we sure will confuse them now. Um, so the Jewish National Fund is 119 years old. 
it started in in uh, Basel, Switzerland, um, and it was after five Zionist congresses that they had held. And Theodor Herzl finally realized that everybody's coming and talking, coming and talking. You know, if we don't do something, then all we're going to do is we're sitting around talking. And and so by doing, he wanted to raise money to repurchase the land of Israel, repurchase the land of Israel. Instead, you know, there was a whole group of people that said, no, we, that land is ours. It's in the Bible. Let's just demand it. And then there was the group of people that said, the land is ours. We could show it legally. Let's sue everybody. The Ottoman Empire, British Empire, everybody. And then there was Theodore Herzl who said, let's quit talking. Let's just do something and let's go repurchase the land. And we repurchased the land of Israel starting 119 years ago, acre by acre from people who would sell it to us. By the way, today, Iran makes Israel the only country in the nation that has a bill of sale that goes with it. Um, it's a remarkable story. And, and from that origins, from repurchasing land, you have to do a lot of things. It's not repurchasing. Then you've got to cultivate it. You've got to develop things. The kibbutzims, the moshavims, you have to. The planting of trees, by the way, is a great story as well. It wasn't that nobody wanted to plant trees. We were under Ottoman Empire at the time. You had seven years to grow on your land or to build on your land. Where were we buying land in the swamps up north where people didn't want their land? So we bought it from people who didn't want their land. Nobody could live there. So you planted pine trees that came from Eastern Europe, not to grow a pine forest, to plant because pine trees you don't have to take care of. Then they discovered watershed management, ecology, environment, but it was by accident. It was to hold on to that land. Then it became the great foresters. And over time, the Karen Kayemet, and the Jewish National Fund in USA uh, had a, 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 an understanding. The Karen Kayemet has the land leases in Israel together, and it's a very complicated. I could do a whole podcast on that. Nobody understands it. But very few people in Israel really own their own land. Most of the land in Israel is, is lease-held land. Uh, but don't tell them by the Israel Land Authority, which was started in 1961 to try to bring it all into some sort of sense uh, but telling Israeli they don't own their land, they'll argue with you forever. But they're all on capitalized leases. And uh, the Arab Waf owns land, uh, the, um, about 6% of the land of Israel. The Greek Orthodox Church owns uh, a lot of parts in Jerusalem. So it's a very complicated on land issues. But the Karakayemen, and like the Jewish agency in Israel, like Yad Vashem and everything, uh, become, they're very politically organized organizations. Uh, you know, the head of the Karen Kayyem is from the Labor Party, used to be the Likud from the Jewish Agency. The J Jewish National Fund USA decided we wanted to be our, 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 uh, in control of our own destiny. And so over the course of the past years, we really uh, have been, since 1926, but in real reality, we have our own offices in Israel produced. We work with the Karen Kayyem very closely, tree planting on things that they could do, but we also took as our responsibility and as our vision, working in the Negev, 60% of the land, 60. And when we started, only 6% of the population, and today it's almost 10% of the population, we want to bring 500,000 people to the Negev. Or the Galil, 17% of the land, and we want to bring 300,000 people to the Galil. And I told you about water, where we turn water 
from now 4% when we started was reused. Today is 90% reused water. So the Jewish National Fund is truly together with all the people in the United States and the people of Israel, the builders and developers strategically of our homeland, the Jewish homeland of the Jewish people. So real, essentially at the end of the day, these are two separate entities, Yes, but they work hand in hand, sort of hand in glove. When, 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 listen, uh, it's uh, when it makes sense, you know, they have their own priorities and we have our own priorities. And when our priorities come together and it makes a uh, uh, good uh, fiscal and management sense, you do it. But if not, uh, you have to do it your own. And, and look at, you know, in the United States and in Israel, there's uh, uh, we have a, a conversation that, that is not always the same conversation. And so we have to make sure that the most sacred thing that we do, what's the most sacred thing when you're traveling, what does somebody do? They give you money for tzedakah to be there, right? Because that is the most sacred act that you have to complete the act of tzedakah. And so I take that as our responsibility today. And in that responsibility, when somebody gives us money, I have to make sure that it's absolutely going exactly where they want it to go and how it's done. And so we do operate separately, but we operate in unity. So what would you say is the main priorities nowadays for JNF. I know they do actually still plant trees, right? But there's lots of other things, road work, water restoration. How would you sort of qualify what the major priorities and initiatives are under the organization's purview? So that's great, Ari, because we, I always tell our staff and our lay leaders over and over, they roll their eyes. I tell them we don't do any projects ever, ever. We do vision. And under vision are a lot of projects. And so our vision has been the development of the negative. So I'll tell you quick, some quick stories. When we started after, why did we get into water as well? Is that Ronald Lauder wanted to develop the negative and everybody said there wasn't water. So that's when he decided maybe he had to cure that problem. And, and for the most part, we have. We're still dealing in water. There's still needs in water. It's still a crisis, not a catastrophe. But when we had the negative, Beersheba, 16 years ago, Ari, Beersheba, the capital of the Negev, okay? Beersheba had Ben-Gurion University. It had housing sites. It had a shopping center. It had a movie studio and an opera house. And it was losing 3% population per year, and it was 190,000 people. And in Israel, if you mentioned Beersheba 16, 17 years ago, it was the place I stopped for gas on the way to a lot. It was a Bedouin town. <laughs> ah, today, Beersheba is 246,000 people, the fastest growing city in Israel. It will be 500,000 people within the next 15 years. And the Jewish National Fund took in seven miles of dry riverbed in the middle of town and built a seven-mile river walk together with a park that's three times the size of Central Park, a 29-acre lake in the middle of Beersheba. The water is going to run through the river in the next six years. We built an amphitheater, a 13,000-seat amphitheater, the largest entertainment vehicle in Israel. We, together with the city of Beersheba, are now going to be building the only Zionist campus in the world, a place where Jews from throughout the world will come together. Our high school in Israel, because we have a thing called Alexander Musk High School in Israel, it's a high school for kids, not day school, public 
and non-day school kids are coming for a semester abroad experience. And when we took it over six years ago, it was 800, 800 kids a year going south. Today, it's 1,500 kids a year sold out. A semester abroad, whatever your semester is in high school. So we're going to build our second campus of Mus High School down in the Negev. We're going to build a, a college internship center, a technology center, where college kids, when they graduate, can spend a year living in Israel, working at Dell Computers and at Wix and at Intel, and learn Hebrew and learn Jewish life, and at night come to our classes and go on teals and every Shabbat, Every Shabbat, be invited to somebody's house for Shabbat dinner. When they come back home, if they come back home, if they stay and make Aliyah to Israel, great. If they come back home, they're not going to know the hallways of Knesset, but they sure are going to know the streets of Beersheba and Avi and Avi Tom. Then we're going to build an adult education Zionist center for synagogues, for teachers. Where do you teach about Israel? Where do you bring public school teachers or day school teachers to teach about Israel. There's no center for it. We're going to build the only center for it in the entire world in Beersheba. And if that center is going to be for synagogue groups or major gift groups or young leadership groups, for groups from Australia and groups from America, for religious and non-religious, for people from the right and the left and for young and for old. And we're going to build, Ari, a new conversation of the Jewish people, the conversation of the 21st century, the conversation that's going to be about, yes, we are great, the Jewish people, and let's do it together. What kind of pushback do you get? I imagine not everyone always buys into the vision or all aspects of it. What kind of walls do you come up against and how do you overcome them? How do you deal with the challenges? You know, the, the most common for anybody, it's always like uh, the ones who say it's too big. Uh, it's too bold. Uh, let's do smaller project and accomplish it and then move to the next smaller project. And Ari, I will tell you that it's the biggest mistake we do in Jewish life. I believe it's the biggest mistake you do in any business. And, if, and you, it's the biggest mistake that you're going to do in, in cultivating young people. What is the greatest movies that people go to, they don't go to documentaries. They go to the Avenger movies and to the Superman movies and the Spider-Man movies. Those are the ones in the Star Wars. Why? We want to dream. That's life. That's Jewish life. That's everything about Judaism is dreaming. And if we don't evoke those dreams, so I tell people when they say, well, why don't we just do something smaller and accomplish it and smaller and accomplishment? You're not going to gather the Jewish people because the Jewish people want to dream. We're built on it. Everything about our life, everything we're taught, everything about what I told you, the story about Shabbat, everything is a whole uh, uh, a story. You cover your eyes. You're imagining that the sun has gone down. Then you imagine that the sun, that the moon is there because you looked at the first sight is the sight of the candles that you have lit. There's all these dreams and stories in Jewish life. So I get pushed back sometimes from those who don't want to dream big. <laughs> I tell them, you want to gather the Jewish people and bring the younger people in, dream big, have vision. And you know what? You'll get there. And the greatest movements that we have, you could take the Chabad movement, you could take a lot of the movements. Who would have guessed that you would have all these things going on today in Jewish life? It's the greatest 
time of the Jewish world. There has never been a greater moment in Jewish life. We are on the greatest thing. When everybody kept telling me, you know, you read, uh, I think it was 1967, Look Magazine wrote an article called The Diminishing Jew. And they predicted by the year 2000, we would be 2 million Jews in America. Orthodoxy would be dead in America. Um, Reform Judaism would be near dead. And the only thing would be around would be conservative Judaism. Okay? I tell you, Look Magazine's not around. But we're 9 million Jews in America. We've grown by 10.5% in the past decade. Reform Judaism is growing. Orthodox Judaism growing and conservative. Okay, they're having their problem. So, but, but look what happened this Pesach during quarantine. I'm not going to go the halachic thing, whether Zoom calling was a good thing or bad thing. But I am telling you, go on to social media and see everybody posting people who said, I haven't made a, a, a Passover Seder in years, but I made it. Or people the day after were doing challahs online and showing their challahs, say, I haven't made a challah in my life, but I made it. Jewish life is about people wanting to be part. Let's bring them under and let's bring them in and let's invite them to be part of this greatest party ever on the face of the earth called Judaism. What was your relationship with Israel like before you took this position? I imagine you had been, and obviously now you probably go many times each year, at least when it's not the Corona season. But what was your relationship going into this position and perhaps how has it changed? So I didn't go to Israel until after I left college. And, uh, but I always, uh, and I'm, and I'm, we're zoom calling and behind me is a picture of the cocktail. So I tell this story because it was, um, a powerful moment for me. Uh, my grandfather, who I loved, 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 loved dearly and was uh, religious, he always said to me, listen, someday, he had never been on an airplane in his life, he'd never been to Israel in his life. He said, someday you're going to go to Israel, Russell. You're going to go to the, uh, at that time he called the Wailing Wall, okay? You're going to go to the Western Wall. And I'm not going to tell you whether you should be actively Jewish or not actively Jewish, Russell. I'm just going to tell you this. Do it for me. Whenever that moment is, now he had never been there, Ari. He said, I want you to go touch the wall. Not because you're going to feel anything. I just want you to touch the wall and turn around. And I want you to see all the people coming to the wall. And at that moment, you make your decision whether you're going to break the chain or strengthen the chain. Okay, it was a great story. All of a sudden, I make my first trip to Israel. I'm thinking, this is crazy, but I'm going to go to the Western Wall. I'm walking up there. I'm thinking, this is crazy. I see the wall. I'm not going to feel anything when I touch this wall. I'm going to shatter my grandfather's memory in my head. But I go up and I touch it. And then I start shaking because I don't want to turn around. And I turn around, and it's as my grandfather had placed people in front of me, from the ultra-Orthodox to a guy trying to figure out how to put the yarmulke on his head, from dark-colored Jews to light-colored Jews. And I saw this whole menagerie of the Jewish people walk into the wall and that moment I was going to strengthen the chain 
So that was my first. I now go to Israel, except for this time period, every month, sometimes twice a month. My daughter, our, you know, our daughter, uh, my wife Marcy and I, uh, our daughter lives in Israel. And uh, so she lives in Tel Aviv, but always tells me, you know, Dad, every so often in one of your speeches, you can mention Tel Aviv, you know. <laughs> They're doing okay. They don't need you. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, so she always says, you know, you don't have to, like, be like a negative Tel Aviv person. Uh, and uh, our son lives in Charlotte and was married and uh, uh, joined a synagogue. And so all these things that you, you, you want and you wish and you dream and you hope and you, 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 you work towards happens. And it happens because I believe you live it. So I think that when I went to Israel for the first time, it was an emotional piece. I go to Israel now. It's still an emotional piece. I love the spirit, the people, the ingenuity. You get angry. It's part of the fun. Uh, of, uh, you know, uh, I was just kibitzing with somebody this morning who wanted to write a book about Israel. And I said, so the title is, I know everything and the answer is no. And uh, then start from there. But with that, you know, from an incredible uh, place that is 72 years old, somehow they figured out how to wake up in the morning and build Tel Aviv 105 years ago from the sand dunes. Somehow they figured out how uh, eight and a half, nine million people are living there and, 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 and dealing with it from all different kinds of, of, of Jewish perspectives and non-Jewish perspectives. And somehow they've developed one of the greatest armies in the world and somehow the great health services and research in the world. And somehow uh, they recycle 90% of the water and the closest country to it is Spain is 17%. Somehow... Uh, we're bringing hundreds of thousands of people to Negev and to the Galil. Somehow, we're going to build a culinary institute in Kiryat Shimona and a food technology center uh, in a place that's surrounded by Lebanon and Syria. Somehow, we're doing all this. One of the really incredible aspects of Israel from a religious perspective is the amazing amount of Torah learning that goes on nowadays in the modern state of Israel perhaps more people studying Torah than at any other point in Jewish history. Just today on Yom Mood, I was watching the annual Chidon Hatanach, the international Bible competition. A friend of mine, actually the middle school principal at my son's school, his son was the top-placed diaspora contestant and came in third in the world after a couple people in Israel. And it's just amazing what's going on there in terms of Torah study. Have you gotten a chance to interact with the great citadels of Jewish learning there? And have you been able to enhance your own life through encounters with the great Jewish learning renaissance that the state of Israel and modern Jewish history has occasioned? So, you know, it's one of the fascinating things, and that's one of the things about our campus in Beersheba I'm looking forward to as well, is because I think that um, uh, there's been a separation of our communities and it's wrong there's i think fear on both sides of fear of unknown and fear of unknown uh we take a lot of orthodox rabbis for instance to israel when we take them i and i say it very clearly i met them after they came back to us seven of them i won't say who i'll let them tell who they are but we take them all the time and they said, you know, amongst us, we have been to Israel about 80 times, and we had lived in Israel collectively about eight years. And thank you for taking us on our first trip to Israel. So I was shocked. Because nobody took them to Akko. Nobody took them to Beersheba. Nobody took them down to the Arava. Nobody took them to Ahalutza. So all of a sudden, 
they're finding. They go to Alexander Musk High School in Israel. You know, when we take those high school students, they're coming to get into the best colleges because having an academic experience abroad is great. We teach them biology and AP calculus, and we're the greatest at it. But you know what else we teach them? 4,000 years of Jewish history from young kids who grew up like me, okay? Now, I will tell you, I bring religious people into my school and Musk High School, knowledgeable. Let them sit with our kids after they've been there for weeks and learning, not just traveling Israel, learning about Abraham's well from the perspective of academically and then going to visit it. And you see the start, uh, the things that are mixing. We have a group of young leaders called Macomb Communities throughout Israel, which is Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, non-Orthodox, and non-Jewish. And they're all coming together because collectively they want to build communities from within. And they're helping each other on how to do that so that you don't leave communities behind and you teach uh, after-school programming and arts and, 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 and help them. And they've been feeding people during this pandemic and delivering food to, to elderly and the people in need together. And so we're seeing a lot more of that, the conversation coming together. And I will tell you a great place. We do a program called Be Inscribed. Be Inscribed, it's on jnf.org. You could order a letter from a Torah. Ah, where's the Torah being scribed? On top of Masada. Every day, the only air conditioned building in, in Masada, when you go up yes, there. That's the guy. <laughs> okay? And that Torah is being scribed on the exact location in which 2,000 years ago, fragments of a Torah were left from a people that thought it was the end of the Jewish people. And I have to tell you that when we dedicate a Torah to a community that is not a religious community, and yet they brought their children up and they're dancing with the Torah, and they brought the Torah and dedicating from a place that 2,000 years ago we thought was the end of the Jewish people, and yet in Karen Shalom they can look at the wall, and beyond that wall are people that want to end the Jewish people, and they're saying to them, look what we have, a Torah from a place that you thought was the end of us and it will never be the end of us. So all of these worlds are coming together, and that's what we're trying to do at Jewish National Fund. And I am so, our leadership and everybody is so focused and no pushback. We're going to build a new conversation of the Jewish people between religious, non-religious, right and left, old and young. You're speaking my language, Russell. I love it. Um, you mentioned that you've had the great opportunity to bring rabbis and others on their, quote, first trip to Israel, so to speak, and, and really give people that behind-the-scenes look, that chance to see Israel from a different perspective outside of maybe the, the typical sites that they go to. From that vantage point, what would you say is the most surprising or underrated place in Israel that you wish people knew about? Go to Kiryat Shimona and meet a mayor who's 34 years old, who uh, was single when he got uh, elected uh, a year ago. He's now married. And he took on, imagine in a community like here at Shimona where it's really run by the good old, I don't mean this, it's the cigar smoking back rooms, right? Meet seven of the 14 members of the city council under the age of 40. You want to see Israel today? 
You want to see Israel tomorrow? Go and meet the mayor of Beersheba, who looks like a bar mitzvah kid, who's one of the most popular figures in all of Israel. You want to see Israel today? I'll introduce you to the woman who is the mayor of Yoraham. She's single, 36 years old. I don't know if I'm allowed to say her age, but she's 36 single. Okay? And she ran and won the mayorship of the city of Yoraham. You want to meet Israel, the fantastic people? Quit meeting all of the people who are, quote, the hallways of the Knesset. Go with me. Go with Jewish National Fund, and let's introduce you to the streets of Kiryat Shemona, the people of Akko, the people of Beersheba, the people of Yorokham, the people of the Arava. Do you know down in the Arava below the Dead Sea in Eilat, 14,300 true heroes. Why? They're protecting that land, that border, not with a machine gun, not with a tank. They're planting pamelas and peppers and tomatoes because they're loving the land of Israel. They're doing what we believe is the most important thing, making love to the land, the soul of the Jewish people. And when you go down there, you could visit a school that we help participate in that has 1,500 college students from Southeast Asia and Africa countries that do not have even representation with Israel that are learning agua and agriculture over a nine-month period to get 22 college credit hours to go back home to talk about how great Israel is and how it makes the world a better place. You want to learn about Israel? Get out of the hotel rooms in Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim. It's a very important. Don't skip Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim. But by gosh... Get out and see Israel and meet the real people that are making the difference. Meet the people in the Gaza envelope. Meet the people in the Arava. Meet the people in Akko. You want to see coexistence? There's no coexistence in Akko. It's the way it lives. Go walk in the old city of Akko. Go see. You want to see coexistence? Go to Kerem Shalom and see all Orthodox or in the Chalutza communities, Orthodox with secular together in the Eshkol region, living hand in hand without the, the headlines of the newspapers. That is real Israel. All right, Russell, you got me fired up. As soon as this Corona thing is over, let's do it. I'm waiting for my ticket. Let's go. <laughs> um, one final question, and that is, how has this 21 years working in JNF changed you? Every day it does, and I, and I don't mean this as a coy answer or anything. I really, I think you're hearing it in my voice. I get excited. I, this pandemic, I've been on the phone with all of our affiliates every week, and I'm sitting in front of that screen on the Zoom call, and I'm looking at these people, and I'll just tell you that a story literally that changed my life a week ago. And these happen all the time. I told you about the Arava. They plant flowers and they plant vegetables and they usually sell to Europe because they're high quality. That's how they make their money. So their vegetables and their flowers are sitting on the vines. And Hashomer, one of our affiliates, brings teenagers from the central part of the country down to the Arava and picked the vegetables and the flowers. They trucked them up to the center part of the country where another one of our affiliates, special in uniform, where 501 
soldiers with special needs, physical and mental disabilities serve in the Israel Defense Forces because of Jewish National Fund, because Israel is the only place on the face of the earth that has that. 501, and so the people in special uniform came and helped package those vegetables and flowers into smaller packages. And then our Macomb communities, our young leaders from our communities throughout Israel came together and delivered those flowers and vegetables to Holocaust survivors and to elderly and to people in need. There was no one person who asked any one person to do this. It was them together on a phone call talking, and they together came up with this issue, came up with the solution, and came up with the program. No fanfare, no big headlines, no sitting around talking and sending out letters and telling we need a dollar to do this. They went and did it. They did it. I'm inspired by those conversations, by those stories every single day, and it changes my life every, every day. Russell Robinson, CEO of the Jewish National Fund, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.